there's no one who, who lives without regret. Regrets of one form or another. We may handle them differently. You know, some handle them better than others. And some deny them altogether. But nobody lives without regret. And that, that song sort of gives the different colors and shapes and nuances to regret from things that have gotten away from us, missed opportunities, to life having stalled, to life having gone too fast. It's a part and parcel to life that regret is the stuff of we just didn't take the chance we had or, or we missed what was right in front of us and then we go on. The um, Seriously, very good news is this. The passage we look at and actually the entirety of what Jesus teaches is that regret's not the end of the story. It's, it's not that we just wipe it away or pretend it, it, it never happened. It's not that we rewrite the past, but that there is something that Jesus brings into our life that allows whatever regret we have, whatever story that's been told so far, not be the end. That there is a freshness to what goes forward. That there may, may need to be something done with what's happened in the past, but today actually can be a new day. And he will continue to pursue our hearts in order to lead us to make choices today that can take us forward. Then the regrets truly sit in the past. And that is the story we're going to look at. As we come to the end of this series, we're going to look at a story of a couple of people living with regret and lost opportunity and Jesus pressing hard into their lives in order to get them to rethink where they are and what could happen from here. So I'm going to, again, we're going to look at a story, the last of eight stories out of the Gospel of Luke we call Awkward Conversations. And let me give you a little background to it. It's going to be one of the final seasons in, in see, scenes. Couldn't get the word. Scenes in his life. And when I mean life, it's sort of his next life. I mean, this is after he died. Rose from the dead. And in that moment, we're going to see one of the final scenes of him on earth. And I'll give you, again, give you a little bit of context. When this scene happens, it's just on the heels of Passover weekend. And Passover in ancient Israel was, was a, a huge event. It was not simply a, a, a religious festival of some in, importance, but it, it said something to the nation of Israel about who they are, about their identity, and in, in some fashion called them back to what they always believed was true. You see, Passover was a, a, a um, festival that had begun when Israel was, <clears throat> thousands of years ago, was delivered from uh, an oppression under Egypt of hundreds of years long that they never thought they'd be able to escape. And God delivered them out of that in order to form them into a nation for him. And so they celebrated the night in which they were moved away with a a whole series of symbolic food. You know, there, there was bitter herbs to symbolize the bitterness of their captivity in Egypt. There was unleavened bread to symbolize how swiftly they had to leave and there wasn't time to, to bake bread with leaven in it and let it, let it rise. And so it had all sorts of symbolism about God bringing them to himself and calling them as a nation. But it had even more symbolism in that current moment that we look at in the time, life and times of Jesus because they were under an, a, a rule of a Roman government that had an iron fist holding its empire and sought by every means possible to stamp out national identity. For the empire, the national identity of any group that it ruled over was simply not good. 
They wanted to stamp out national identity so that everybody was Roman. And they did that culturally and religiously. And Israel remained the one truculent country that would not give up its national identity. That wanted to remain Israel. Being oppressed by Romans. Not Roman citizens. And so this event this event of Passover allowed them to once again say yes we are a separate people this is our identity we were released from captivity once and it will happen again and so pilgrims came from all over the Roman Empire they came back to Jerusalem you know, the center of Israel they came back and they, they walked you know long days journey back to Jerusalem to share this this event this festival with their fellow Israelites and their and their center city, Jerusalem. It was a bit of a different Passover weekend than even that, than that normal moment of national identity because in this weekend, there had been a crucifixion, a public execution, and this did not happen often on Passover. And it really, it really threw things up in the air. It, it, was, it was not simply it was a public execution, but it was a public execution of, of a, a man named Jesus that, that some of them in fact, many of them who were in Jerusalem had this inkling that perhaps this was actually the deliverer. This was actually the one who would restore their national identity, the, the chosen one, the Messiah. And in, in a week ago, he had come into Jerusalem in, in a parade. An impromptu parade was thrown for him to celebrate his coming. And then quickly, within the span of a few days, he's taken captive, that he's tortured, and then he's executed. And so that's been the weekend for the pilgrims who've come from around the Roman Empire to gather for Passover. That's the the setting as we come to this passage. And I'm going to be reading in Luke, the 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 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus. And that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with, with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? So understand, this is a pretty normal event. Pilgrims traveling on the road, they're leaving the festival, and another pilgrim comes up and joins them. Happened often. They traveled, they traveled together, and, and, they, and they talked and they told their stories. And in this case, Jesus comes up alongside these two pilgrims and he sees them talking in, in muted tones and obviously at some level serious and he says, what are you guys talking about? And this is uh, the response he gets. They stood still. In other words, they stopped in their tracks. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and did not know the things that have happened here in these days? You know, he like they're walking along and they go are you kidding me I mean are you the have you been hiding under a rock are you the only one that doesn't know what's on everyone's lips I mean they're clearly unhappy and they take it out on this pilgrim who comes alongside of them they they get to release a little bit of their venom on this idiot who doesn't know anything about what's going on Are you alone among those who don't know what's happened here? And Jesus says, well, well, tell me. And this is what 
the man responds. This is what things said about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. For any of you others, does this strike you as a speech? I mean, this is pretty, a really a pretty well orchestrated discussion. He doesn't say, well, this thing happened with Jesus. And about Jesus now, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. And he goes on and he gives this vivid detail. It's as if he's ready to tell, or perhaps he's already told this story to a number of others. He's got some vivid details. And in his sadness, he regales Jesus with all the details of what has happened. It's almost as if, almost as if, he's reveling in his misery. He's just ready to tell anybody the sadness of his tale. Oh, we thought he was going to be the one. It's great in word and power. And oh, by the way, some women said he rose from the dead. And uh, then we sent some men. Okay, I'm sorry. This is not me. This is 2,000 years ago. I'm only the messenger. 2,000 years ago to say some of our women amazed us would have meant nothing. It's curious that he even put it in there because a woman's testimony was considered to be invalid, worth nothing. And so what he says is, look, some of our women, I know, some of our women said he rose from the dead. And so we sent some of our men <laughs> to check it out. They also found the tomb empty. Curious. But they didn't see anyone. And so he gives this whole story of the sadness of his weekend in vivid detail. And Jesus says, I know, it's, wow, it sounds like it's been really hard on you. What a, what a miserable weekend you've had. He says, and here we go, awkward conversation once again. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? He says, how foolish can you be? And you've got a great speech filled with vivid details and facts, but how slow of heart you are, not slow of mind, how slow of heart you are to believe. With everything that's been laid before you, how slow of heart you are to believe. And then he says he walks through beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explains to them what was said in the scriptures in all the scriptures concerning himself I've been a Christian over 30 years I've been a pastor over 20 I would love to have heard that conversation he says he walked through all the scriptures what we now call the Old Testament what was simply the Bible the scriptures he went through it all and he explained to these two guys, that all of it pointed to him and that this thing must have happened. That, yes, in fact, he was the Redeemer, but the Redeemer had to die. Here's a quick snippet. This is the Bible. The Bible is the story 
of redemption. It's the story of God sending his son to redeem his people. It is not a science text. It is not a history text. It is not a cultural text. It's the storytelling of God sending Jesus to redeem his people. And then in the New Testament, it's the story of looking back to how God did send his son Jesus to redeem his people. That is the whole of the Bible. And so Jesus just walks it through and is here, here it's pointing to me, there it's pointing to me, there it's pointing to me. And I think probably that there's a couple of verses that were really important to me in, in my becoming a follower of Jesus that probably fit in there somewhere. And there's, there's a passage in Psalm 22 where it's a Psalm of David where he, the King David, where he's talking about you know, his, his own life and, and suddenly he shifts at the very end of that in Psalm 16 and, and says, but you would not allow your Holy One to undergo decay or abandon him to the grave. And it's really, it's this curious text. If you take it by itself, what do you, what do you mean, David? Not allow the Holy One to undergo decay or abandon him to the grave? Everybody gets abandoned to the grave. Everybody undergoes decay. And then there's this passage in, Psalm, in Isaiah 53. Isaiah is a, a prophet about 700 years before Christ was born. One of the key passages, very, very formative passages in my becoming a follower and if you read it really seriously read it if you have a Bible go online it's really easy to go online now Isaiah 53 (laughs) just google Isaiah 53 it'll come up and you walk through it and it gives vivid details predictions of the death of Christ the reason why it was influential in my becoming a Christian is I said to somebody who was telling me about the gospel I said it sounds really good but how do I know it's true and he goes said go read this passage. And he told me to go read it. And I said, he said, what does it sound like? I said, well, it's clearly, you know, the death of Christ. Clearly. And he said, true. It was written 700 years before he was born. Wow. But you walk through it and it gives these vivid details of the death of Christ. And then right at the end it flips. And it says this one will prolong his days. And you're like, wait a minute. Death, prolong his days. And there's passage like passage after that which talks about one coming who would die, but then somehow he would no longer be dead. And Jesus walked through the, the, the Old Testament scriptures and continued to point out the passages for these men to go, oh, this is what was supposed to happen. That the Redeemer would come just as predicted. He would die just as predicted. And he would rise from the dead. In so doing, he would accomplish the greatest need of his people, which is forgiveness for our sins. So, Jesus walks through that whole thing with them. And it says, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning? within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen has appeared to Simon. Then the two of them told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So that's the story. What does that mean for us? a couple of things which will all boil down to one but first thing is this I want you to consider this here were these two men they had by their own account seen Jesus' life 
By their own account, they said he was a prophet, great in word and deed. They had seen him raise people from the dead. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him give these majestic words which sort of either stung them or made their hearts come alive. So they, they had watched his life, and it was a compelling life, so compelling by their own account that they wondered, is this the one? So they had lots of background information, actual information on how Jesus had lived, and it had been compelling to them. Then also, they had the testimony of some of their women, that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he had made these sort of cryptic thoughts about that during his life and that he had actually risen from the dead. And then they have their own, the man who had said, we went to the tomb, the tomb was empty. They have a lot of information. And with all of that information and all of that evidence, the result, the grand total of the result was that they were downcast. With all that information, they were sad. They were walking out of Jerusalem with their heads down, talking with anybody who would listen to them about all the events of the day, and it had had absolutely zero effect on their life. They walked away as I was talking to a friend between services, sort of like at the end of a football season, ruining how the Panthers had gotten knocked out by the Cardinals. Can you? Oh, she was just, you know, with it. He threw, Jake DeLone, why'd he throw it to that guy? We'll see. But there's next year. They walked away as if nothing had changed. Nothing. All the while, everything had changed, and it was right before their eyes. Everything had changed, it was right before their eyes, and nothing within them had changed. And so then Jesus actually stands in front of him. And he's talking to him. And still nothing has changed. And then he recounts everything from the Bible that they believed about who he was. And still nothing had changed. And then they see him. And everything changes. How do I know everything changes? It immediately changed how they act. They were walking away from Jerusalem. They were done. Hey, season's over. (laughs) They're done. They're going back home. They turn around and go back to Jerusalem. Now something has changed. Now all this information that they have in their head, now something has changed. And their life is different. If you... um, How many of you have looked at the graffiti on the wall outside? I feel bad even calling it graffiti. It's really nice graffiti on the wall outside. If you haven't, or even if you have, prior to today, it's finished now. The fourth, two of our artists did this as a depiction of the last four weeks and really of the whole series. I encourage you to go out there and stand it and look at it because essentially, so I was talking to one of our artists and as I looked at it this morning, it's saying this, our life is a series of awkward conversations. That we are, by definition, awkward. We, we don't quite have our steps down. We are maladroit. We're clumsy spiritually. And yet, in the midst of that clumsiness, in the midst of that awkwardness, it is Jesus who continually presses into our lives in order to speak to us and to bring us to liberty. We 
stumble because of what's in our head. We stumble because of what we believe. We stumble because of what we're afraid of. We stumble because we're not quite sure we want to act. And Jesus continues to reach in to raise us up to liberty, to freedom. And so my question to you at the end of this series, it's easy to look at these two guys and go, wow, I can't believe they didn't get it. Just can't believe they didn't get it. I say this with all due respect, including myself in it, we just don't get it. We've got lots of stuff in our head. But we are slow of heart to take in and act on what we believe. And the course of our life before God is Him attempting to make us quick at heart. To receive quicker. And to have that seen in how we act. And so I ask you at the end of this series, what of these awkward moments that we discussed, which one of those have you decided, I'm going to act on this? At the beginning of this series, I looked back at my notes from day one, and I said, these are awkward conversations we're going to look at because Jesus is not content with us living with the status quo. He's continually trying to change what goes on within us. So which part are you going to change? Which part of the status quo are you not going to allow to be status quo anywhere? Which part are you going to hear God speak to you and say, okay, now I'll change that. And I'll walk through several of the parts of the series, but what struck me is this. You know, he wants them to change now. I mean, right now. Last week when we talked about the rich young ruler, he looked at him and he goes, okay, this is the only thing you need to do, just one thing, just give away everything. Now, right now. Go ahead and give it away. There's another passage where it's one of these passages where you think Jesus is just over the top. You know, there's a guy who comes up to him and Jesus said, I want you to come follow me. And he says, um, my dad just died and uh, my sister's really bad with arrangements, so I'm going to have to, I'm paraphrasing, and so I'm going to have to run the funeral arrangements. You know, I'm going to have to take care of it and it's going to take a little bit of time, you know, and there's the grieving process. And so I'm going to do all that. And then as soon as that's done, really, as soon as that's done, it's all I got to do. As soon as that's done, I'll come follow you. How's that? And Jesus says, now, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. And again, it seems sort of over the top. Jesus recognizes, though, in him that he's saying, I'm going to get to that. I really am. There is not enough space on a to-do list for how many things we can get done tomorrow. Apparently, we can do thousands of things tomorrow. We can get to them. It's a much smaller list of what we say right now. Because my heart is compelled, I'll do it right now. I want to live this way now. Jesus wants to change the way you live right now. Not pretty soon. And so what part in this whole series do you hear God calling to you? Maybe it's that sense what it says in the passage. Are your hearts not burning on this one thing? Is it that God's calling you to shut down the idol factory? Those things that you produce, like the rich young ruler had for money, those things which you cling to, which define who you are. 
those things which you make your God and allow you to live, is it, is it time to shut down the idol factor? Is there one idol, one thing that really, you know it, you know it deep down, it defines who you are and you will not let go. And is God saying, I, I'm, I want to take that out of your hand. You don't need idols anymore. Is God calling you to look at how you believe he will provide for you? and actually take him seriously. The one passage we looked at, which is a, was a parable of a, of a cranky neighbor, really, a cranky neighbor who would give you what you wanted. And the question I ask in then is, do we believe more in the cranky neighbor giving us what we need than we do in God giving us what we need? And I found that to be a sobering question because yesterday I was in my backyard doing manual labor, mm. And my next door neighbor was too. He's not cranky, by the way. He's a very nice guy. But um, I'd already borrowed a number of his tools, and I'd gone over, and this is how I did it. I was in fear and trepidation. I wondered and wondered, should I ask? I just walked over. I walked over, and I said, hey, can I borrow your so-and-so? Sure. Well, in a, in a sort of a, a, a home improvement moment, like Wilson, he yesterday was in the back. He raised his you know, head over the fence and goes, hey, can I borrow your rake? And I said, get your own rake. I went and I picked up the rake and I said, sure, he's my neighbor. Why wouldn't I give him my rake? I already had his sledgehammer. And <laughs> Why wouldn't I give him my rake? He asked me for something like that. If I've got it, of course I'm going to give it to him. If he's got it, I know he'll give it to me. He even offers things I didn't ask for. You might need this. I might. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> now, now, he's a decent guy, but what I thought of is I honestly, really... Really, not theoretically, actually, I have more trust that he will provide for me than I do for my Father in heaven. Not theoretically, theoretically, I know better than that. Come on. But actually, when I pray, God, would you provide for my need? Do I believe he will be kinder than my next door neighbor? I don't know about you, but I found that terribly challenging. And then I see the momentum of how Jesus works in people's lives. And I realize he's saying, not Bruce, someday I'd like you to trust in me. But I'd like you to trust in me now. Give us, here's the, here's the when, he, when he says this, I want you to pray. You know, give us today our daily bread. I, I want you to pray today for what you need. You trust more in your cranky neighbor than you do in God. What's been the touch point, the change point for you in this series? Maybe it's the whole concept that God seeks to bring change in your life. He seeks to bring you to liberty and that he will never relent until he does. I find it fascinating that here he's got these two guys who, <clears throat> they got lots of information. It would be easy to say to them, you know what, look, I just lived three years among you. I raised people from the dead. What more do you want? I've had numbers of your friends tell you a tomb's empty and I rose from the dead. What more do you want? I've walked through the entirety of the Bible to explain to you how this all fits what more do you want? 
And he does all that and he gives them more. He will not relent until he hits that point in our life where we say, I see. I see. And now I'll act. Today, God is seeking to reach into your life and say, I will have your heart because I love you. And out of that, I want to bring change today. What's the change you're putting off? What's the change that you know is real and needs to happen? What's the status quo that needs to stop being the status quo? God wants to lift you out of that into freedom in that area. And he calls you then to say, I believe it and now I'll act. Make today, at the end of this series, your moment of action. Where you choose to embrace all that God has laid before you and all that he's saying to you now. And you act. The last um, song today will be a song called uh, he won't relent. And as the whole worship set builds toward that, I want you to see, you'll, you'll feel it in a lot of these songs today. They will be bringing home powerfully this truth that God will not relent until he sees great free, freedom and fruit and liberty in your life. Embrace that today. Let's pray. Our Father, we at once are grateful that you won't relent because we are slow of heart. We tend to be terribly slow of heart and slow to act on what we know to be true. I pray that today, just in one area, in one area for each one of us, you'd show us where we need to quicken our heart to believe. Where your Spirit has already woken us up to that. And show us just one area where we can move from head knowledge to heart belief, to action. And give us the will as you reach into our lives to begin to act today on what we know needs to be different. I pray particularly for those who have heard much about Jesus and have never embraced you. I pray you'd speak to their hearts powerfully this morning that they would know that they know at the deepest level that you are calling them back to a relationship with you. And that they will do the simple act today of turning to you, asking forgiveness, and asking you to come into their life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the, series, the um, second set builds powerfully, I think, off this message. And from beginning to end, it's designed to help you to engage as God interacts with you first. That's why we put the offering at the beginning of our uh, worship set it's designed to teach that we respond to God's initiative of our life. He is moving into our life over and over. He doesn't relent. And as he reaches us, we, out of what he's done in our life, we give back toward him.